Open your Bibles this morning to the book of Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2. I whispered to Kenneth a few minutes ago as we were sitting here on the platform, I said, I'm preaching from, uh, from Philippians is one of those, uh, one of those problems where you, you always want to go back and you always want to go forward. It's just, there's just so much in this little letter that it's hard to stay focused on just one or two verses. But that's a good thing. Unless you're listening instead of preaching, you might have to listen a little longer. Philippians chapter number 2, and as much as I'd like to read the entire chapter, I won't, but rather start in verse number 5, which happens to be a verse I taught several messages from on Wednesday night uh, about a year ago. Verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and uh, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When I read these verses, it just leaves me speechless. Because they paint a word picture that is so glorious that my mind cannot take it all in. Knowing that we live in a fallen world, a world that is described in Isaiah 53, 6 as every man having gone astray. We see why there is so much confusion and so much conflict. And we ask ourselves, how could it be otherwise whenever man is turned to his own way? And we see it again in the book of Judges where it says, Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So obviously we live in a fallen world that is divided. And adding to the problem is the fact that not only are we divided, but we are determined to impose our views upon others. So it's no wonder that we cannot live peaceably with one another. And so all of that makes for a troublesome place to live. And as Job said, man that's born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. So that's life here on earth. And so we're always at war with someone, regardless of all of the peace talks and all of the efforts that go on, still there's one war after another. There's discord in politics, everywhere you look, in religion, in economics, families, businesses, everywhere you look, there's great confusion, most of all when it comes to religion. But let me ask you this question. Would you be surprised if I told you that there is coming a day when all people will find common ground and be in agreement. 
In other words, a time where there will be a universal consensus that we'll all come into total agreement. Now, I know that for beyond a shadow of a doubt, because look at verse 10 and 11, where he says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, verse 11, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I mean, that day is coming because we have the assurance of God's Word. At the present, this truth is something that is despised by the world, and that's not anything new, by the way. Because ever since the time of Christ, when He came into the world, presented Himself as the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world, and presented the kingdom of God for the consideration of the people, And there were those who rose up not only against him, but against the disciples. And it continued even after his death and their death, the persecution of Christians. The Romans, of course, said uh, Caesar is Lord. They didn't mind a supernatural Christ. They didn't mind uh, the Christians talking about a Christ that had been virgin born. They didn't really mind a a Christ that was a miracle worker. They followed Him around. He became a source of entertainment to them. They didn't mind about Christ being crucified and even resurrected. But it's when they refused to say, Caesar is Lord and said, Christ is Lord. That's when the sword of punishment fell upon them. And it's obvious that this doctrine of the Lordship of Christ is of utmost importance. There's no room for error. It is the key issue in every person's life. Who do you recognize as Lord? And it's real easy to see where most people stand. You look around in the world today and again. Every man is doing that which was right in their own eyes. Every man is doing whatever it is that pleases Him. The attitude is, just as in the days when they crucified Lord, the Lord, is that we will not have this man reign over us. Now, this morning I want to speak to you about this, this great consensus, this universal consensus that finally, at long last, will come. Notice First of all, the reason here for Paul's writing, and that's why I said earlier I'd love to go back and to read the verses that come before this, and I'd love to read on and get over into the letter because it deals with some issues that existed there in the church. But the problem was, as Paul is writing this church, it's not just a letter about prophecy, it's a letter of great practical value because He starts out by giving thanks for their support, but then immediately he moves into the nature of the problem, which is disunity in the church. Here is a church, as good as it was, that had some divisions, and he is exhorting them that they be of all one mind, that they have the mind of Christ. And again and again, he addresses this issue of gaining unity in the church. And a church where everyone is in one accord, that is, they're like-minded, let me tell you, is a beautiful thing to behold. Because it's not that way everywhere. But if that's going to happen, 
then we have to pay attention to what Paul is writing here in these verses that I just read. So this is the reason why Paul is addressing this issue. Then we see the reminder here that he gives regarding Christ. And verse 5 down through verse number 8, one of the most sublime statements in all of the Bible, because in it we see who Jesus is and what he did. I'm talking about his person and, and his works, who he is and what he did. But we just don't get a picture of who he is and what he did. It also gives us an example for what we ought to do. And notice there are five things mentioned here as he shows us the way to genuine greatness. Five things. Verse 7, the first thing that he mentions that characterized our Savior and should be true of us is self-renunciation. It says, but made himself of no reputation. Well, he certainly could have if he had chosen to do so, but he did not. There was the renunciation of himself. Secondly, look in verse 7, we see the second characteristic was that of servanthood. But took upon him the form of a servant. Then verse 8, we see the third thing is humility. It says that he humbled himself. Then in verse number 8, notice the fourth thing was the matter of obedience and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And finally, in verse 9, we see the exaltation. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted Him. I could speak for hours about all of these things. And as I said, I preached a series of messages just on those things because those things that were true of Christ ought to be true of each and every one of us. That's not my purpose today to look in that direction, but I want you to, I want you to think about Christ and what He did, who He is, and we'll get to the main point at the last point. Now notice verse 9. Because here we see the right of Christ to be honored. It says in verse 9, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Notice how that begins. It says, wherefore. That means as a result of. And that takes us back to what he has just said about the Lord Jesus Christ. That he made of himself of no reputation, but took upon him the form of a servant. He humbled himself. He became obedient unto death. And because of that, of who he is, because of what he did, his person and works, the Father, it says that he was highly exalted and given him a name which is above every name. And well, he should. That reminds us that it's God's opinion of what matters most. It's what God thinks that determines genuine greatness. And this being the case, the name of Jesus stands out above all others. Remember the old song, the name of Jesus is so sweet. Boy, it certainly is. It just leaves you at a loss of words when you think about the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There have been many that have ascended to positions of power and prestige in this world by unjust means 
or people that have been undeserving of the position that they attained unto. But Jesus earned and deserves this place above all others. He is the God of the universe. He has universal authority and he deserves universal attention. His name is special. There's no other name that can be compared to him. It stands alone above every name. It is spotless because although tempted in all points such as we are, yet without sin. There's not one blot, not one blemish on his record. He was sinlessly perfect in every way. And it is a saving name because the Bible says neither is there salvation in any other. For there's none other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. It's a saving name. And and this is why the Father hath highly exalted Him. Notice in this recognition of Christ in verse 10. As we already mentioned, as a result of this perfection that we find in Christ that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and then of course every tongue confess in other words his right to be recognized finally at long last becomes a reality believe it or not there's coming a day when everyone is going to come into agreement with God the Father, about Christ. Now, I say that and I realize that that doesn't even seem possible. To think about everyone, those that have died and gone on, those that are yet living, everyone in that day will stand before God, give an account of themselves, and all come into agreement that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Think of all of the the different people that will appear before him eventually. I'm talking about people that will eventually have the same opinion. There there are the atheists, those that declare that there there is no God. And they're bold in that assumption. They write books about it. They lecture about it. They're emphatic that there is no God. It's unscientific and whatever other reasons that they might list. They are totally convinced there is no God. And then, of course, there are the agnostics that would doubt the very existence of God. Well, you know, there might be, but it's not provable. It's an assumption that we have. And, you know, it's an assumption that it could be true, but I really doubt it in that attitude. But in that day... Every atheist and every agnostic will confess that he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There are the Unitarians that deny the Trinity. And in that day, they'll realize that there is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are those who are polytheistic. That is, they believe in more than one God. They have gods in the skies and gods all over the earth. And there are many gods. And then there are, of course, the Satanists who believe that Satan is God. Boy, what a warped, perverted thinking that is. And yet there are those who believe that. There are religious people of all different groups 
If you just took all of the different religions represented here in America today, that would be a shocking number. And of course, then there are those professing Christians who are unsaved. You know, we tend to have the idea that if you're some heathen dancing around, uh, dancing around a totem pole over in the middle of the darkness of Africa, some way that you're worse off than some so-called Christian cult in America that says that you have to be baptized or join the church or do good works in order to become a Christian. We just assume that they're worse off than, than these people are, and that's not true. Amen. We look at the Muslims and all of the difficulties caused by them, and we think, you know, some way or another that if we're just a part of what is identified as Christendom, that we're better than they are. No, you'll be in the same hell they are if you haven't been born again. There is no difference. You're either saved by grace through faith or you're depending upon your own works to get you to heaven. And that doesn't work. When Jesus came the first time, He was doubted. He was falsely accused. Slandered. Hated. Despised. He was beaten. And as you know, He was crucified. Abused more than any man. As Isaiah said, his visage was marred more than any man, beaten beyond recognition and crucified on the cross. But I'm telling you that in this day of which we speak, that day will be the day that he'll be vindicated because all of creation will bow down before him. Those that have spoken evil against him will have nothing but praise. Those that have stood so firmly against him will be bowing down on their knees, confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it's not a question of whether or not you will confess him, but when. Everyone will, but it'll be too late for some. Today is the day of salvation. You might be one of those firmly entrenched as an atheist or an agnostic and you have it in your mind that you'll never change, that you'll never be convinced that Jesus Christ is the Creator, that He is the Redeemer, that He is the resurrected Savior of the world. You're convinced you'll never believe that, but believe me, you will one day acknowledge that as a truth. So considering who He is and what He has done, how in the world could you dare doubt Him? How how can you doubt the one that was raised from the grave? How, How can you disregard Him whenever He proved the greatness of His love by His death on Calvary? How can you disobey Him? How can we dishonor Him whenever we claim that He is our Lord? That brings us to the reality of His reign. The reality of His reign. We're not talking about great things just being ascribed to Him. We're talking about the fact that eventually it will become a glorious reality. And throughout all of the ages, God has been at work. Even during those dark times, even those during those times whenever it seemed that God had stopped communicating with man, it seemed that God cared nothing about man, it seemed that we were just left to our own devices. 
to hopefully make our own way through this world and to some way or another get ready for beyond the grave. But I want you to know all during that time, God has been at work. He's been at work carrying out His eternal purpose. Do you know what that is? Think about it. You say, well, I'm a Christian and I love the Lord. Do, Do you have any idea what God's eternal purpose is? Paul deals with it when he wrote to the church at Ephesus in chapter 1. He repeated it over and over again. That it's God's eternal purpose that eventually that He's going to gather all things together in one that is in Christ. That He will have the preeminence. That's God's plan. That through Christ, He will restore fallen humanity. Isn't that a wonderful thought? That eventually all that was lost in Adam's going to be regained in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the Bible speaks about believers having a glorious inheritance awaiting them as the children of God. That's why I keep repeating over and over that the best is yet to come. It really is. It really is. You might be in perfect health. It might be that the future looks bright. You have money in the bank. Everything is going your way. But I'll tell you, God has something a whole lot better than any of that. But we think about this. The day that eventually that God's going to turn the tables on the world and that God's going to restore all that was lost, And we just have to confess that according to our natural mind, that all seems too good to even be true. Kind of like the little boy that uh, said to the old preacher one day, he said, you know, he preached about heaven. He said, preacher, that just seems too good to be true. And the preacher said, no, it sounds too good to not be true. And it really does when you stop and think about it. I mean, understand that this is something that our natural mind cannot comprehend whenever we think about all of the great things that God has prepared for those who love Him. We can't comprehend that. That's beyond our ability. And whenever you consider the sinfulness of this old world, it doesn't seem possible that will ever become as it is pictured here in the Bible. And that's why we need to stand on God's promises instead of judging by appearance. And based on what God has revealed, we need to spend more time thinking about what He said because knowing, knowing what is to come enables us to endure the tough times that we're going through. It helps Just knowing that the best is yet to come. I mean, it's just a part of God's plan that that I go through this. For some reason beyond my understanding, it's just part of God's plan. But I know the best is yet to come. And in that day that we stand before Him, it will be without any complaint whatsoever. And we'll see how all of the hard times, difficult situations, all of the suffering, all of the pain, all of the agony we'll see that God used all of those things for some good. Amen? And was working in us through those things that we would have never chosen for ourselves. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher. Amen? 
Uh, from the beginning to the end, he's the author and finisher of our faith. And then, as Paul said, consider him. And well, we need to consider him and to think all of the, about, you know, the great delight that lies ahead for us. Indeed, the reality of Christ being finally at long last recognized as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If you're here today as a Christian, that ought to bless your heart. You ought to be thrilled to know that, that God is bringing His plan to a completion. God's purpose, God's plan. And whenever we just look at this, Paul's just giving us a brief outline of what's going on because we learn from this that the only possible way for man to be at peace and to live at peace is to live under the authority of Christ. Remember, he's talking to a church that is divided. There's bickering, there's jealousy and envy and all of this stuff going on. And he's giving them the solution. He's saying the solution to your problem is for all of you to live under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why you ought to, because someday everyone's going to bow before him and confess Him. When Jesus was walking here upon this earth, He spoke to His followers about the kingdom of God. And for there to be a kingdom, there must be a king. Amen? And He is that king. He spoke to them about the need of living under His authority, and yet He was honest enough to warn them about the difficulties that they would face as a result of that, that they would be despised, that some of them would even be put to death. And all through the ages, that drama has been playing itself out. All of these centuries, one generation after another has come onto the scene, and every one of them has failed to correct the problems associated with the fall. We've all failed. In fact, we've not only failed. With each succeeding generation, things just, as Paul said, gets worse and worse. Regardless of all of the programs and all of the plans of man, the domestic strife, the social ills, the government corruption, the religious confusion, all of those things, it just keeps going downhill. But let me tell you, whenever it seems that there is no hope, whenever it seems finally that, you know, that we might as well throw up our hands in despair and give up, at long last, when we least expect it, God's going to break through all of the misery in a great way, and He's going to set in motion those things that based on what Christ did, is going to bring out the ultimate end of His eternal purpose. He'll set the wheels in motion. And I say that because it comes in stages. There's the rapture whenever the Lord appears in the air. He comes for His people and the dead in Christ shall rise and we which are alive and remain shall be called up together to meet them in the air. That's the rapture when He snatches His people out of this world and then, of course, the seven-year tribulation period that God uses for the sake of causing man to, to see his need of God. And boy, if ever there was a time where somebody ought to see their need, it's during that time. 
And then there's the revelation when Christ comes back this time with His people. Amen? And ushers in the millennial, the thousand year reign with His people here upon this earth. But God ain't through yet. Because after that, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And in that day, at long last, whenever the devil has been banished, defeated forever, and that day when every person will stand before the Lord and agree with Him that Jesus is the King of kings, He is the Lord of lords. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, He must reign. He's emphatic about it. He must reign. He must. Why? Because God promised. And God cannot lie. He must reign. He will reign. We know that finally, one day, the Prince of Peace will have prevailed and He'll rule over the entire earth. The sad part is that there are those who finally at long last will come to realize that all of their life they've been wrong about this man called Jesus. They've been wrong and cast into a devil's hell to be separated from God forever and ever. Well, listen, if that, if that describes you, you need to do something about it because one day you're going to recognize the mistake that you've made. And you need to do business with God here this morning by putting your trust in Christ and being born again. If you're here and you've already been saved, all of this ought to awaken us to the fact that not only is the best to come, but this very thought of Christ being enthroned in that day, finally recognized for who He is, that ought to affect the way that we live. It ought to affect how we deal with one another. And if we expect for our church, if we expect for our families, if we expect for our society to be anywhere near what it ought to be, the only way for that to happen is for each of us to recognize that He is the Lord of Lords and surrender ourselves to Him and to put ourselves under His authority. And as we do that, thank God it does several things, but number one, it enables us to cope with the difficulties but number two, it enables us to do those things that are pleasing in His sight. In other words, it motivates us. It, it gives us the strength that we need. And that's why when you read on in this very same chapter as Paul's dealing with this issue, and, and, and he says, verse 14, do all things without murmuring and disputing. Then he tells us to be blameless and harmless. And then he tells us that we're to shine as lights in this world, holding forth the word of life. And, and reminds us in verse 21 that we're not to seek our own, but the things of others. And we wonder, how in the world can I live up to such a high standard as that? Well, he didn't leave that out either. Because he said in chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Amen. In other words, what God requires, God provides for His children. Whatever your need is here today, Jesus 
is the answer, whether it's salvation or whether it just might be that that the troubles of this world have just overwhelmed you and you just feel like giving up. You feel like that there's no no reason to go on. And you're wrong because there is a reason because of the fact that Jesus is Lord and we have no right to quit on the one who went a little farther and a little farther until finally they nailed him to the cross. He didn't give up on you. Don't you dare give up on him. Will you listen to him this morning? Will you do as he has commanded? Acknowledge that he is the Lord of my life and whatever he requires, whatever he desires, I'm willing. Let's all stand together. Heavenly Father, how we thank you, Lord, for the price that Jesus paid. When we think about all of the things that he did, we stand amazed when we wonder at his great power over creation. Lord, we stand amazed when we think about his, his teaching. And Lord, that the uh, benefit that we derive from that. We think about, Lord, his goodness and how amazed we are that anyone could face the temptations of this world and yet without sin. But Lord, most of all, perhaps we're overwhelmed by the greatness of his love to think that we who have failed so miserably that we are loved so much by Jesus Christ himself who proved it when he died on the cross. And I pray if there is some man or woman, a boy or girl today that's here in this service that's never received Christ as their Savior, may this be the day they do so. And Lord, for your people that might be discouraged, Lord, for those that might have, for whatever reason, neglected their responsibilities, may this be a time in our life that we would commit our ways unto him and live for him and only your glory. For we beg it in Jesus' name. Amen. While we sing and as we stand together, would you come, whatever it is that God might have you to do this day. Oh.